like I have such authority. It's voice echoing through the halls. Uh, okay, so the knowledge of God, uh, the first thing here is, and the knowledge of God is the most important reality of our lives. So A.W. Tozer wrote Knowledge of the Holy, and uh, A.W. Tozer was faithful. He was also part of Christian Alliance, which has a really strong kind of mystical element to it, a really kind of that, that uh, subjective side of Christianity, which is, you know, we, we don't excuse that, but uh, that he emphasized it. But he wrote some really good and useful works. And here's one of a statement that he's made that's uh, been repeated many, many times, but we'll read it here. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that religion, no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. That, that says a lot in that, right? No religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Now, that is a huge, huge statement. Uh, so our thoughts of God define who we are as his image bearers. And as the church, collectively, what we say about God, what we leave unsaid about God, what we think about God, has everything to do with um, revealing our hearts, with revealing the reality of our spiritual life and where, where we are. And so if we put that standard alone as an impress, as a guide, uh, as it were, um, against the church, we, we would see that there's a lot of deficiency that we have. Uh, Herman Bavnik, Reformed Dogmatic, says this. So maybe somebody could read that one. So everything, everything begins and ends with the knowledge of God. All of Christian theology, and here dogmatics, is, is an overflow of our knowledge of God. It's attempts to explain him and to understand him and his ways. John Calvin, and this is one of my personal favorites. I, I think in his institutes, those first few chapters are uh, some of the most uh, important uh, in the whole of the institutes, uh, at least in the terms of spiritually impactful. And, and he, says, he says this, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. In the first place, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face, and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. Suppose we but once began to raise our thoughts to God. 
and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impresses us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is, what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. And so you get the idea there's two. One is that we will never think rightly about ourselves unless we think rightly about God. We'll never think rightly about ourselves until we have a right view of God. So all knowledge of ourselves begins not from a humanistic point of view by looking inwardly at ourselves. A right view of ourselves begins by looking outside of ourselves to God, to who he is and in his nature. And it's in that light that we begin to see us for who we really are, both in terms of our significance and in terms of our sinfulness. And that's the idea here. And, and so even as we saw wonderfully, we know that, that sort of dramatic way that that's shown in Scripture is with Isaiah when he goes into the temple. Does everybody remember that? When Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, and he goes in and the seraphim are flying around. Remember, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, exalted, train of his robe filling the temples. And there were the three seraphim shouting back to each other, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory and so forth. And then what did Isaiah do? You remember? Right, I am a man of unclean lip. I live among a people of unclean lips. And then the seraphim came, touched his lip, took a coal from the altar and purified him. And, and that set him off then to where God was going to prepare him to ministry. But the point here, which really is what Calvin is making, is that talking about that idea. I, Isaiah never really understood Isaiah until he was in the presence of God. At that moment, he had a clear picture of who God was, a clearer picture of who God was. And in that clearer picture of God, he understood himself. He understood himself rightly. So that is always if, where the knowledge of man begins and the knowledge of ourself begins with God. Number four, another quote. Henry Scogel, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Somebody would, would read that maybe. The worth and excellency of the soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who liveth mean and sordid thoughts doth thereby become base and vile. But a noble and well-placed affection doth advance and approve the spirit unto the with the perfections which above. The true way to improve and ennoble our souls is by fixing our love on the divine perfections, that we may have them always before us and derive an impression of them on our souls, and beholding with open face, as in, gla- as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, we may be changed into the same image and glory of the Lord. He who with generous and holy ambition hath raised his eyes toward the uncreated beauty and goodness and fixed his affections there Okay, basically a, a similar thing. Our soul and the worth of our soul is measured by what we hold to be value, what, what captures its affections. And that, that, that measures the worth and the excellency. And we tend, we tend by this, this sort of secret law within us, which is the idea of what A.W. Tozer said, to be drawn and conformed to those things that we treasure and that we love. And when we see the beauty of God in Christ and we behold him as he truly is, we 
are conformed more to that image. And the more that we know him, and I think hopefully that you can say this as a Christian. I can say this as a Christian, I think, and I'm assuming that you can. That as you grow as a Christian, the things of this world simply become more and more vain, more and more vile, less and less of a kind of affection on the on the heart. Uh, and that just increases and gets more and more and more until you're just, you know, you're like almost like Paul. I can't wait to go home. The thing, things just don't have attractiveness uh, as they as they once did. Charles Spurgeon, lastly, here says this, and I'll read this because I just realized that if I don't read it, it doesn't go into the microphone very well. Charles Spurgeon, this, now this is quoted in, uh, I did spend a little time trying to find this in his sermons, but I didn't, so I just took, the, took where it was in uh, Packer's book, Knowing God. But he quotes him uh, here, he says this. Now, what's interesting, and Packer notes this in his book, uh, Spurgeon was 17 years old when he gave this sermon. I thought, man, I wish I was here when I was 17 years old. <laughs> But anyway, uh, here it is for us uh, right now. He says this, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. And the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the intention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. The subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God or no subject. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Isn't that great? So that means then, I mean, so the reality of that in terms of our spiritual life is that whatever burden, whatever sorrow, whatever grief, whatever anxieties that we might have in our life, the answer to them is to have our thoughts and our affections come in line with who God is. When we feel the most burdened and the most fearful, one of the best things we could do is study the attributes of God. To read scripture that simply speaks of God's greatness and of his majesty. To realize that that God is the one who has redeemed us and with whom we're in fellowship with. The one who is for us. uh, The one who is acting for us for his glory. That is where... We are to find our strength. And so we'll, when, we study the, when we study God, 
Uh, that's not a secondary issue. It's certainly not an academic issue. It is the very heart of our spiritual of our spiritual life. It is the very heartbeat, I should say, of our spiritual life. And so we, we want to be lost in the immensity and the greatness of God. And it's only in that understanding of the greatness of God that we'll really understand the gospel. And we're going to bring that point out later down the road, but we won't really understand the grandeur of the gospel until we really grasp how great God truly is and how wretched we really are. And then you see, and he redeemed me. Draw out of his people then a life of worship and a life of praise and a life of wanting to honor him and serve him. Uh, Well... Um, so the study of God, then, the summary, is, is the most important pursuit of the Christian life. And I guess what we could say, we're, we're looking at God, we are going to look at Christ more specifically next. Um, but we would want to keep in the back of our mind that when we say the study of God, we would remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, the study of God, so basically the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's really where God has shined this, uh, shown the spotlight of his glory. But really, to even understand that, then, we have to have a bigger view of what, who is God in terms of his nature, his glorious nature, because it applies equally to the Father and to the Son and the Spirit. So the reality and purpose of God has everything to do with our existence, our purpose for existing, and for the world. So we can't think rightly. Of it. The basic point, you can't think rightly about anything uh, if we don't think rightly about God. Um, so right worship is related, and I'm just going to skip over the top. False thinking about God leads to false worship of God. Um, we won't look at we won't look at these uh, verses because we're going to swing around to some of these things later. But pagans, so you know, we hear I have that pagans trust in a false view of God. But it's equally true, and we're actually going to bring this point out in several weeks with with Judas. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it's something that applies across the board. Namely, that Judas had trusted in a false Messiah. That he was trusting and wanting a, a Messiah that was not the real one. That was not Christ. And, and so it is that man does that all the time. Christians do that by creating a false kind of Jesus, a gospel, that is uh, not meant to exalt God, but really to exalt the sinner and the, and the benefits that they can get from God. It, it happens, of course, with any false view of God. Uh, there's going to be a false worship. We have to we worship God as He is revealed Himself, uh, and so of course people can trust in those views. Uh, true thinking about God. So, so let me just give one example of that where it says people can trust in these false views. Romans ten three. We don't have to turn there just for time's sake, but uh, Romans ten three says uh, this. He's, he's he's referring to the Jews and how he says they're seeking. Uh, he bears testimony that they seek after God, but what does he say after that? Do you remember? But it's not according to knowledge. And so therefore, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have neglected or they've rejected the righteousness of God. So their whole religious system, then, that which was a false system, this is the point that's being made, was built on a wrong view of God. And if you have a wrong view of God, then you're going to have a wrong view of how you can be right with him. And so in their case, then, it, they, they had constructed a system of righteousness that and it worked for them, but it worked for them because it was without knowledge of God, a right knowledge of God. Because as soon as you have a right knowledge of God, you realize that there can be no righteousness other than what he gives and is provided in Christ. So true thinking about God leads to true worship. 
uh, Jesus Christ equates eternal life with the knowledge of God. I don't want to keep putting anybody on the spots, but some of these I think you might know. John 17, 3. Does anybody have that one? Uh, this is eternal life. Could somebody finish it? That they may know. This is a good memory verse. They may know the, the only true God no, uh, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So what is the very sum total of eternal life? What is it? And eternal life is that life of God that is extended to us through Christ and by the Spirit. And so it is to share then eternal life in the very life of God. And what it is, it's to know him. It's the knowledge of God. And there it's not knowledge, like intellectual knowledge. The term there is the, the term that's throughout the New Testament in terms of an experiential knowledge. An experiential knowledge. In this case, a relational knowledge. Uh, a real experience. And it's... Uh, Repeated, but maybe it's helpful, is to say it's something very different to say I have a knowledge of Abraham Lincoln, right? And I can tell you all kinds of facts, but it's this distance, as to say like the knowledge that his wife would have had or his closest friends would have had at that time. It's a different, it's that way with God, and that's what Jesus is getting. That the, the eternal life is that we have a relational, a real uh, knowledge of God based on relationship. So that's the very heart of eternal life. So if somebody has no interest in the knowledge of God and they profess the name of Christ, you, you really would go, you know, uh, that's not what Jesus said, that, that you would want to know him. And growth in grace is related to our knowledge of God. Uh, the study of God then is found on two pillars, two pillars. And these might seem obvious, but they are um, really essential. And this is where all the kind of debates that go on between believers and unbelievers uh, is this, the study of God is founded on two pillars. One, that he exists and that he is knowable. That God is and that he is knowable. Now, in the history of humanity, and particularly the history of the church, those are actually very big questions. That, and, and they're questions that Scripture itself places at the central, uh, as a central tenet of our faith. Hebrews 11.6. He who that comes to God must believe that he is that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And then he gives the list of all that. He gave some before that, and then he gives the list of those. So the study of God, you, we come with him and say, well, first of all, that God is, he really is, and that God is knowable, and that, that it, is, it is good for my soul that I would know him. Scripture assumes the existence of God. It does not seek to prove it. I did not... Uh, the, the proofs I was going to do that for, that are typically given philosophically for the, the, um, for the existence of God. But just to set this, this out as a basic point, uh, that, that God, uh, the scripture assumes the existence of God. It does not seek to prove it. And God has actually set a basic knowledge of himself and eternity in the human heart. What, what is it that man does in Romans 18? Right, right. He exchanges the truth. And before that, he says he suppresses the real truth. He holds it down uh, through a variety of means. Uh, one would be the whole scientific endeavor of evolution and such to really kind of hold down this truth of God. Uh, but the point there is, is that in order to do that, it, they have a knowledge of God that they're rejecting internally. So man has a certain knowledge of God that he rejects by nature and, and tries to hold it down through a variety of ways. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in the heart of man. 
Well, let's jump down to here, uh, just, and I'll mention this. Uh, well, let me mention this. Uh, some wrong approaches to that, and, and this, I'm going to just mention these, but some say, well, God cannot be known because he's infinite and we're not. He's infinite and we're finite. And so God can't really be known. And so any quest, any attempt, any uh, effort put into a real knowledge of God is really it's doomed to failure. It's, a, it's, it's vain. It's not really going to produce anything because whatever you, def- you define or discover about God or discover about God is ultimately going to be uh, something less than the truth about God. Uh, it's not going to be really who he is because we couldn't. That's, that's one wrong idea. The second is that God cannot be known because he cannot be known comprehensively. And this group argues and says, well, if we can't know, and, and there are, see, there are some similarities there, but if we can't know everything about God, we can't know really anything truly about God. And so, therefore, why, why attempt to do that? Um, but that, that's false. To say that we can't know God comprehensively is not to say what we do know about him is any less true. Uh, and that would de- deny uh, scripture that, again, eternal life is, is to know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So what, if we want to put this in maybe some broad terms of scripture, so what the Jews knew about God in terms of his glory was, was perfectly true about God. It wasn't everything. When Christ came, that was going to be expanded. So there's no less true. So as a Christian, we can go back and 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 enter into that world and realize it wasn't yet what we know, but it was, it's a true knowledge of God. It matches up perfectly God revealed in the Old Testament as God revealed in the New Testament. In the news, we just have more. It's more. So it's not, uh, th- that's kind of the idea. To say that, and that's kind of a, uh, one little way maybe to illustrate that, is to say we can't know God comprehensively does not mean to say that we can't know him truly. We, we absolutely can. Uh, here's some wrong approaches, the mystical approach. Uh, you can re- read some of those. Basically, mysticism is the idea of, of uh, if you wanted to boil it down, is the idea of an unmediated knowledge of God. It's where I had to read for one class these, these mystics, Teresa of Avila. Wow. Have you ever read her? You're nodding your head. No, but I know that they included. Yeah. Yeah, I don't recommend it. That was one of the most unedifying books I'd ever read in my life. And, and others that were along this. I mean, it was just weird. And so, uh, but the idea, the point is, is and, and that's some of the extreme cases, but extreme case. But uh, the idea is there that the, you, you, you eventually, you kind of, you move past objective truth. And there's this sort of elevation of experience with God that you have. And that's the real knowledge of God. Not so much what you're going to get uh, here but as this kind of experience that you're going to have privatized over, over here. If you may not remember this, but Quakerism was that, the Quakers. It was this guiding light, this sort of inner light that we have. And remember, I mentioned that that's where the Puritans came in, and they really clarified, reacting against Quakerism, that it's the spirit and the word. The spirit never works apart from the word, and the word is always understood only by the spirit. And so those two things are inextricable. They're bound. Um, the, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so, anyway, we see that now when people go, well, I don't really want to read my Bible, but if I go out and I kayak on the river and the sun's coming up and a little steam, I feel close to God. You know, I worship God that way. 
yeah, there's, that's how I'm worshiping God, just like that. <laughs> uh, which um, is not, not the biblical idea of knowing him. Uh, the dangers of mysticism, is unre- well, to some, is it's unreliable, ill-defined, feelings trump objective truth that can mislead. You want to talk about a recipe for satanic deception? Uh, go down the road of mysticism. And, and that's, that's, you're just, you, you just open the door. Uh, no, God always works through his word. There is a very real subjective experience, subjective side to our experience, right? We, if anybody, if you know him, you realize there is to, to many, our whole Christian life. We don't want to so put God in a box, which is what a, our circles tend to do that part, where we put him in a box. He's nightly defined. Here's my doctrinal statement. Here's the history of it. Bam, there he is. And uh, God, God, you can't do that. You know, God's doing a great work. And you know this in the Middle East through things like that book brought it out, but I'd heard it, we've heard it long before that through dreams and visions and things that God is doing where he's leading Muslims to... I mean, God works like that still. I, these are credible people who, uh, who speak of how God is doing that. Now, it's not by itself. It, what those things are, the effect it's having, it's leading them to Christian missionaries and to search the scriptures and, and other things. So, so it's always going to lead them to the word, not away from the word. But anyway, this is a mystical approach. Rationalistic approach, um, that's the sort of rational arguments, philosophical arguments for the knowledge of God. You can read through some of that. Knowing God is essential to eternal life. Uh, we made that. It's, it's not a matter of data. This is, this is number C. It's not a matter of data, intellectual understanding, but spiritual experience and love. That is the true knowledge of God. These two realities, information and experience, are not mutually exclusive. Both are necessary for true knowledge. So you can't just say, I want to go off in a corner and love Jesus. And, and not really have an interest in his word. But by the same token, you can't equate a knowledge with God by just saying, hey, I can write out a doctrinal statement from memory. Ne- both of those are wrong. Uh, of course, we know that. that it's, it's together. As a matter of fact, that word is sometimes, you might have it in the, the margin of your uh, Bible. That word that's translated uh, knowledge, is sometimes you'll see, have you seen it, real knowledge? It's, it's like an intensive kind of relational knowledge. In, in, the, in the term that they use, the, the there it's really getting at this idea of it is a deep experiential knowledge it's a knowledge that uh that does its work inside of someone that is uh experienced so it's not just we you know as we're ourselves pursuing and you know teaching uh your your children at home or just those that you might talk to about these is that is that the the that balance of just you know, of emphasizing the spiritual disciplines of the word. Like sometimes, uh, you know, you might have a young child sometimes, that, you know, they spend 30 seconds, I read my Bible. You know, and so how we try to explain that is like, you know, you pick out a friend and you go, okay, what if you had this friend and you just, you know, you said hi and then you walked off and you kind of, and you never really spoke with them or they just said something and you listened for like 30 seconds and walked off. Uh, that, you don't develop a relationship. like You wouldn't have a friend very long. And it really is no different with God. When God is speaking to us in his word, he's speaking to us and we fellowship with him there. We, it's a living word, the living God who is in us. Okay, so the knowledge of God will increase with people throughout eternity. You can read that quote. That's an amazing thought. God is infinite. Just, you know, you think about that for a moment. Can you imagine that to think that for all eternity we will never exhaust the knowledge of God? Never, ever. 
that make you feel <laughs> when you think about that for a bit? It makes you feel really, sm- it's almost a, I don't know, it's like wonderful and scary. Do what? It makes me feel how I am when I have the hope of being nervous. Okay, explain that one. Oh, it's small. Yeah. <laughs> it's a... Uh, I don't know if that's apples and apples, but uh, that is an amazing thought. That is really an amazing thought. Uh, okay, let's look at God's attributes. Two thirty. Okay, and then we'll go quickly. Two thirty. Does anybody want to take a break or get a drink of water or anything? Okay, good. So we're going to run through these. God's attributes. What is an attribute? Well, very simply, an attribute is something that's true about God. Well, I mean, really, it's about anything. If you're, if, what are the attributes of that apple? What do you start doing? You describe the apple. Well, it's round. It has a stem. It's color. It's consistency. You know, different things about that apple. You'll just keep observe it, and you'd, make a, you'd just make observations. Uh, so an attribute is something that's true about God as he's revealed himself to us in Scripture, in Christ, and in creation. Um. Each attribute is true of the divine nature and equally applies to each, to each person of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit who comprise, who comprise the one God. So we'll talk about the truth later. Um, but it is just simply to say that whatever we say about God is true of every member of the Trinity. So when it says in Philippians 2 of Christ that he existed in the form of God, he existed in the form of God. So his true nature in terms of his divine nature is that he is divine and he shares completely in it. Uh, now, in relation to God, God's attributes to his nature, God is not the sum total of his attributes. Which is to say simply this. It's not like you have a bunch of little, you know, you, you, get, a little, you, you get a little righteousness and some justice and some mercy and grace over here and then some wrath over here, and, and you kind of put all those things together, and then you have God. That's not how it works, is the idea, attributes. You have in God, so that the, the, I think we mentioned this later, but God is, he's simple, it's the simplicity, okay, it's right here. The simplicity of God is to say this, God is not divided into parts, yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. We had at the retreat, the teen retreat, so three people here were, uh, were there, and Mr. Rebar went through and he asked uh, all of the kids there whom he's taught, what are, because they've been going through the attributes of God, what are some of the attributes that have been most impactful to you? And then, and then say why. And so everybody kind of went through and did that. And that is, of course, um, we, we would all have maybe certain things that kind of stand out to us that we, we, we find comforting about the way God is. Maybe it's the sovereignty of God. You know, it's just a, a really overarching kind of comforting thought about God. But uh, I can say that when, when I was asked, this is kind of at least how it works out in my mind, in my heart, is to say I don't think in terms of one particular attribute but it is the very perfection of God's being. So whenever I see anything where God acts or does, it elicits just the greatness of God. So when he acts in justice, if he acts in wrath, it is the sovereignty of God, but then the love of God and the mercy of God. It's all of who God is just as God. There are different parts of that as we read through Scripture, of course, that are emphasized and you're impacted, but it's not that it's that one thing. It is that God, that is something true of God and who he is. Does that make sense? Uh, 
maybe, maybe it works out that way in your mind as well. But it is just that he is an, in and of himself as father, son, and even as a triune God is a perfect being. He is perfect in every way and everything that he does is in perfection. The a verse that uh, really I think uh, for, for whatever reason in, in this kind of recently in life uh, has really, I, I find myself having gone back too many times, is First John 1, 5, that in him is light and there is no darkness at all. That's just that he is a perfect being. He can, whatever he does is, is an expression of his perfection. There's no fault in him. He can't do anything that's unwise. He could never act out of weakness. He could never say anything that's untrue. He, he is a perfect being. There is no darkness at all in him. Okay, so we won't spend a whole lot of time on simplicity. And I didn't... I even debated putting it in there because simplicity is one of those doctrines that's really highly philosophical and that's not always really edifying. <laughs> I don't find it uh, edifying. You kind of just hear it and you go, okay, that was a definition, but I'm really confused. And, you know, I, I, how does that help me get up in the morning? Uh, so here I just mention it and it's just, I think the importance of it, I would just want to say this, uh, is that it means that no, none of, no one of God's attributes is to eminence above another or emphasized to the detriment of others. So in other words, God is not more love than he is justice. He's not more justice than he is. Uh, I, I think if I could just make a little footnote here, and you, you, would, um, you would, I think, agree with this. When we think of this in terms of the church, how, and I think just maybe uh, one little tentacle that can come off of this idea is this. That whenever a church is known by something other than Christ, in other words, we're the family integrated church. We are the social justice church. We are the whatever church, a church that just we're all about sovereignty at this church. It's like that automatically means it's going to be out of balance. It's going to be out of whack. Like we should be a church. We want to be known as someone who loves Christ and who is, every, is growing to know him through his word. Uh, and so forth. Whenever you start elevating one aspect of a, uh, the attribute of God or an application of that, it just tends, it veers off. It's kind of gotten off the path at that point. Uh, and it can very easily lead to uh, legalism, a self-righteousness. So, okay, well, you can read through those. Let's look at his attributes. And we'll try to get through as much of these as we can. Oh, actually, hold off. There is one other thing to mention. Well, first this, and then the chart. God's nature is triune. Now that, I said note chart, but I actually forgot to print that out. I'll bring that next time. And this will be discussed later. But it is to say that one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you realize how, how many other religions have something comparable to that? Zero. Does anybody want to give another... Sometimes you hear there are three monotheistic religions in the world, right? What are they? Judaism, Islam, and Christians. But that's actually, that's not true. It almost groups them together as if they have the same view of God, but they don't at all have the same view of God because it's only the Christian view of God as he's revealed himself in Christ that says, yes, there is one God, but this one God exists in three persons, that he exists as a father, as a son, and as the Holy Spirit. That, frankly, as, a, as sort of a, an indirect way, is another 
apologetic for the reality, the truthfulness of the Christian God, the Christian faith. It's, and it's not matched by anything else. No other religion has a redemption like, like the gospel does. And no other religion has a nature of God, a God like the Christian God who is three and yet one. Uh, but that is, that is God. In each attribute, I mentioned this, of the divine nature is true of each person of the Godhead. And this equal possession of the divine nature, this is under number 4C, is manifest in the inseparable operations of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the works of creation and redemption. Is that a confusing statement? Okay. Let me, let me just make one comment about that. It is to say this, that everything that God does, he does as a trinity. And doing that as a trinity that involves each work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, this is the inseparable operations, uh, requires that each bear and possess the divine nature. So in terms of creation, the Father planned it, the Son spoke it, the Spirit brought it into being. Each distinct works, each person acting consistent with their personhood as Father and a Son and Spirit, their role within the Trinity, and yet each one requiring the, the nature of God to perform their action. So that, we'll talk a little bit more of that down the road. Now the division of attributes, and now we kind of get down to our main point. So you'll see this chart. Now, First, in, in terms of why would you even divide them? Well, it's because categorizing God's attributes, it can be helpful for reflection. But there's nothing inspired or sacrosanct or dogmatic uh, in, in one's division of the attributes. So the point is simply saying there's not like a right and a wrong way to do this. It, it's really just uh, a way that we try to group things because that's what we do as humans, you know, how our brains work, to try to categorize and systematize things so that we can better understand it. And so uh, that's how it is with uh, um, the attributes of God. Now, how did most of y'all learn the attributes of God? Ellie? Okay, communicable and incommunicable. Did anybody have any other way? Okay, that's the most common. That's usually how they're divided. There is nothing, of course, wrong with that at all. I don't personally find that to be the most helpful. Uh, we'll do it a little bit different. But this, category, this chart is a, a way to show some of the ways that that's happened. Uh, moral, non-moral and moral. That's actually what we'll use. I find that to be more helpful. Uh, and then you can look at uh, absolute and imminent as, as opposed to relative and transitive. You know, you can meditate on that. Uh, the incommunicable and communicable. And then if you go on the back, in terms of God's greatness, and then in terms of God's goodness. That final one there under Gordon Lewis, I mean, wow, I thought, that is just way too complicated. You know, I like those two divisions. <laughs> That's kind of simple. He has metaphysical, intellectual, ethical, emotional, existential, and relational. And uh, I thought, That's too much effort uh, <laughs> to follow that system. But yeah. Why is there more under the It's because of the way they group things. You'll find there is some overlap, but it's basically just the way that they group them. And you'll notice also under incommunicable and communicable, 
there's three different theologians that are representing that. And so each one of them uses the communicable and incommunicable, but they divide them up differently. So, yeah, so like look at this, incommunicable. You have Shed Hodge, those are two theologians. That's how they do those. Burkhoff has a different list. Some that, of course, is the same. Bavink has another list. Does that make sense? Okay. The whole idea of that chart isn't to examine this chart. It's not, it's not really helpful. It is simply to say this. It's just to point out, here's some different ways that they, if you come across them, they're divided up, and to say that there's not a right and a wrong about it. So, you know, we don't have to get upset if we go, you're not using communicable and incommunicable. Should I trust you? Um, that doesn't really matter too much. It's whatever works. We're going to use this one. I find uh, that it's most helpful to think of non-moral and moral. Uh, attributes. And so that's the way that we're going to approach it. The first one is this. And those three words are just three different ways. And each may be communicating something you could say nuanced a little bit, but they're basically communicating the same thing. The aseity of God, the independence of God, and the self-existence of God. Defined, it means that God is self-existing. He depends on nothing outside of himself. That's the idea of independence. Uh, for existence. Now, this is, in fact, one of the most humbling truths about God. One of the most humbling truths about God. He says in verse 2, Before, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations of Psalm 90. Before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting you are God. And of course, if you look and they're demonstrated there in Exodus 3.14, uh, Moses asks the name of God. He simply says, I am that I am. In other words, God is the uncaused cause of everything. He is, he simply is, and he acts. That's Acts 17. In him we live and we move and we breathe and we have our being. Uh, all of creation. Uh, ev- everything finds its uh, existence from God. That was part of when we looked at Genesis 1, what was one of the points being made? That, that God is the origin and everything is dependent on Him. The idea of our dependence on God. God depends on nothing. Uh, <coughs> it says there in B, it is God's nature to exist. Here's a humbling, maybe just hopefully it this out a little bit, but we are here, we kind of see people, we look, and we feel very important. But the reality is, is our existence is contingent. In other words, contingent on God's purposes. We don't, we don't hold, we hold no power over bringing ourselves into existence. We hold no power over our continued existence. We have no authority or no power that we will exist uh, in eternity. That is something completely by God's decision. So there's no necessity to our existence. And, I, and you know, as, as a shock as this might be to some, I don't think to any here, but if you didn't exist, it would be no great loss to the world. It would be no loss to God, and it would be no loss to his purposes. Right? I mean, do you agree? God's not any less God. His purposes are not thwarted. Nothing. And here's the humbling. You and I do not need to exist. We don't. And if God just said, you know, I'm tired of this person even being there, I'm going to, they're gone. 
No, no loss would happen to the universe at all. We are simply not that important. But when we think of God, and here's the theological point, God exists necessarily. Necessary. There is no existence. There is nothing if God doesn't exist. If we just all disintegrated in everything God made, there would still be God and there would still be glory. There would still be everything now uh, except outside of creation that is perfect about God. So he necessarily exists. We do not. And so the idea that somehow that somehow there is this importance and elevated self-importance of man that we have because of our fallenness, as if somehow God were dependent on us in any way, shape, or form, is hubris, it's pride, it is an, ex- an extreme uh, arrogance. That's very humbling. It's also very comforting. I, I, you know, just you know, meditate, take 10 minutes and say, I'm just going to think about that fact, and you become very, very small, and God becomes very, very big, and you just realize, wow. I am nothing, and God is everything. And, but that's, that's good. So that, this is the aseity of God, the, the self-existence of God. He's like, look, God is, God is undisturbed. He is, un, he, is un, he is not threatened by anything from man uh, or any of the angelic world. We exist, uh, point C there, because God wills it. From him, Romans 11, can you finish it? Through him and to him are all things to God be the glory. Pride says, from me, through me, and to me are all things. To me be the glory. Uh, but the reality is, is from God, through him, and to him. He is self-determining. He's not influenced or coerced by, by any person or anything outside of himself. Look at Jeremiah says this 28 thank you Jeremiah 428 says this for this for this the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark because I have spoken I have purposed I will not change my mind nor will I turn from it so the point being brought out of there is simply this that when God speaks purposes the final and the ultimate uh, is, is the final and the last word on everything. So the implications here, you can look at a few of those. Uh, God keeps his promises of eternal life. Nothing can thwart him. Uh, he won't grow weary. Do you know, uh, this was a point, I've, I've since seen it brought out in other places, but I first read it in a, a little book by C.J. Mahaney called uh, Humility. Have you all ever read that? It's a really good book. Uh, I've read several books on humility. I don't need to do it anymore because I learned. But... Uh, uh, but one really good point that he made was how humbling it is to think of, this might surprise you, sleep. That seems a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? But when you think, like, and this really was a good point, like I said, I've since seen this said other times, but when you sleep, first of all, the very idea that you and I need sleep, right? We get tired, in Isaiah 40, it talks about youth, vigorous youth, you know, when you're young and you're kind of invincible and you just, you can keep going and going and going and you get hurt. It's like nothing stops you, really. And then as you start getting a little older, you're like, man, I miss those days. <laughs> you know, it's not exactly like it was. 
nobody in here is really old yet, but some of us are a little further down the line than others. Uh, but the point is, is that here he says, though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly. So even men in our physical prime uh, on this earth are still weak. We still need sleep. We still get tired. We're still, we still need to have our bodies repair themselves. And so that's one part. The other part when you think of sleep is this. Uh, when do thieves break into a house? Right, do they come in in the day? Why? Because you can, right, you're going to defend yourself during the day, but you sneak in at night, right, when everybody's asleep. When we're asleep, we're vulnerable. We are totally vulnerable. Like you put an alarm system and you do things, but you are vulnerable when you sleep. Uh, God never is all the time at infinite degree at his strength, he, at the prime of his strength. He never needs rest. He never grows weary. He never grows tired. This is what flows out of that. So we, we never exhaust any of the energy of God. He's never limited in what he can do and who he is. He, while we sleep and we may take break, breaks because we are weak, we are dependent, uh, he never does. And that's Isaiah's point. Look up to God. They were in captivity. God who's going to deliver. Who's going to deliver them? The God who created all these stars, who upholds them all who knows them all by name. He doesn't get tired. He never grows weary. Don't think that in any way your God will fail you or that he could fail you because he is uh, alone, uh, dependent and glorious, uh, dependent on nothing and glorious. So you can read some of those other things. God is spirit. This is a non-moral thing, but just part of the nature of God. He's spirit. He is infinite. God is the infinite and perfect spirit in whom all things have their source, support, and end. And you can see some connection here. Grudem says, God's spirituality means that God exists as a being that is not made of any matter. Than any other kind of existence. Again, meditate on the spirituality of God. And this is going to hit with our next thing, the infinity of God. He has no bound. We, he is of a nature and of an existence that we cannot even comprehend, really. Everything we know has some kind of limits. It has some kind of bounds. It's of a physical nature. We know only this creation. But God is, out, is, is other than that. He is true spirit and pure spirit. He's corporal, and he does not have a physical body. John 4, God is spirit. God is spirit is what he says. Um, 104, say, I'm near there. Psalm 104 says this. Okay, well, you, here's one. You hide your face. He's talking about creatures. He says, you hide your face. They are dismayed. You take away their spirit. They expire. This is God's, uh, that he, he's the one who gives life since they return to dust. Verse 30, you send forth your spirit, they are created. You renew the face of the earth. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Uh, the idea here is, is simply this, that God is the one who brings all things into existence and they exist because he does. So any, any life in his creatures and even our very own life is sustained because uh, he does that. But he himself is not bound to anything physical. 
He gives life to things that are physical, but he's not bound to it. Do you remember Solomon when he created the temple? And so, uh, what did he say? Heavens and the highest heavens cannot. He says, "What he says? What is this temple that I built for you? Do you remember that?" He finishes, so you have this magnificent temple. You have all of these, uh, the priests that are all there. It's this grand, amazing kind of scenery and events that's going on. And Solomon looks at that and says, essentially, what is this, right? It's a building. He says, don't think that, I don't, we don't think that you actually dwell here like all of God. Because he says, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less, he says, this house that I've built for you, First Kings 8. How much less this house that I've built for you. The idea here in relation to this is that God is not containable. We can't melt him down to anything. God simply is, and he is spirit. He's infinite. He is bound by nothing. He's invisible. You know, we have, and it's not just with God, but even like angels. We have, there are spiritual beings that are likely present in this room, but we don't see them. Uh, but they are here. God, though, the idea of God being invisible also has another component to it. So you notice invisible slash cannot be seen in the totality of his being. So First Timothy says this, and I'm going to ask you a question, because we need to uh, wake you up with class participation. First Timothy says this. First Timothy 6 is what we'll look at. Okay, 16. He's talking about this aspect of God. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see. And you go, whoa, wait a second. Moses spoke to God face to face. He met with him in the tent of meeting, didn't he? Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uh, didn't Jesus say, or did John say, that we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth? Didn't we behold, in a sense, the face of God? So what does Paul mean here? No man has seen or can see. Okay, can on his own. Would anybody add to that? Well, it says he dwells in unapproachable light. So Moses walked with God, but that wasn't in in his throne room or wherever in heaven. It was on earth, was it not? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good, okay, so all of those have a role. The main idea here is this, is that no, no creature can behold God or has beheld God in the fullness of his glory. Moses saw his glory, but it was a part. The angels, when they saw a little bit more, remember they hid their eyes and they, they covered their feet. And then with two, they flew, but they, they were hiding themselves from the full blaze of the glory of God. When he said 
this, that no man can see, no man has seen or can see, he means just that in the fullness of his glory. And it is attached also to that Shekinah glory, the unapproachable light. He does have that. I mean, we do see him in a Shekinah glory, but it is always an accommodation. When God reveals his glory to us, he's always accommodating to us from him who is infinite in glory to us. Even in heaven, there's accommodation. It's not like on the new heavens and new earth. That's where all of God is. And so then outside of that, there's nothing. Well, you know, that doesn't, what's nothing? There's something there, even if it's space. It's saying that God fills everything for all eternity. I mean, we, we can't even fathom that thought. So even in heaven, when God is with his people, uh, it's still an accommodation. He's with us in a way that we can behold him, interact with him. But to say that, uh, so that is, he is invisible. He's also personal, self-conscious, intelligent, and purposeful. Uh, let's move on past that, though, so we can keep going. Uh, there are the implications of that. What is the spirituality? What does that mean to our spiritual life? Well, you can add to this, but one basic thing is this. Worship can never be limited to or thought of essentially as externals, but is primarily an internal reality, an internal response to God. Again, we go back to John 4. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And uh, so we can never think then, the idea of that is, is that we can never think of our worship of God as something merely by what we're doing. Our worship of God is always what must flow out of a spiritual reality, a spiritual truth. Like it is, it is born out of an inner apprehension by faith and by the spirit of who he is and a desire to honor him and a desire to please him. That's always what worship is. It begins there. It flows out in the things that we do, but it begins with a spiritual reality. That was part of what we touched on this morning. Um, and so you can look at those. Infinite. Infinite. God is infinite. When I... I tell me if I... Stop me if I've shared this before, but... Uh, before I was saved, I can remember as a teenager driving back from work one night... Um, and this is part of one of those events. I always think of my testimony in terms of like just particular things that stood out. This is one of those things. So I would have been about 17, and I was driving back from work. I worked at Walt Disney World, and I was coming back. It's Florida. It was a cool job, actually. It was kind of neat. And so, but I was driving back, and I, I have no idea what, what uh, you know, what brought this on. I just... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little different. Well, I was definitely immature. But I was I was driving back and and I was and and I, again I don't know what started this, but I was thinking about God. I grew up in the church. It was not a good church, but so I mean I, I did have that. As, uh, but I was thinking about God, and I remember thinking very specifically about well what's after that? Like, what's after the stars? And what is it? And there's like, what color is it? And I was thinking so hard about this that it gave me a headache. And that turned very quickly into anger. I became very angry at God. And I was, I began swearing at him. I was just so filled with anger because I thought, why would you be something I couldn't, ex that I couldn't understand? And this was the infinity of God that, that stirred that up in my rebellious and my wicked, blasphemous heart. But that became something, of course, as a Christian that we look at and we marvel at. It makes us get lost in the immensity 
and the wonder and the glory of God. But to say that God is infinite is to say that he is without limits. And do you see how you begin to just touch on these ideas about God and how ridiculous any kind of these vain things that man rises up against God and utterly foolish it is? That's part of what Calvin was saying. As soon as you raise your thoughts to God, everything else, I mean, you think you're wise, it becomes foolishness. You think you're righteous, it becomes putrid. God is so infinite. Infinite, to say he's infinite, he is without limits. Again, we have no concept of that in terms of relation to God. Zero confidence. Uh, I mean, uh, concept, uh, context for that. Share it. Good. Yeah. Well, he was a good student. It was the fourth century, yeah, 300s. So, and that's so glad that you read that. That was really, the last half was kind of philosophical and you kind of lost me a little bit. But, but the first part was really helpful. I, I started to focus more near the end because of uh, reading the transcript and just from looking at the flying it to uh-huh. <laughs> how to like read that book too because it gets so deep and it actually, it's uh, really cool because that's like Mm. It is, and that was the idea of Psalm 104. You know, he takes away his spirit and they expire and they return to dust. The kind of idea is God could just take that away and we'd disintegrate into nothing. And, and again, the humbling thought is there would be no loss. <laughs> There'd be no loss. That, that's very humbling. Uh, so in relation to time, so I think, so this is with the, infinite, the infinity of God relates to these other aspects that we define as eternal, omniscience, and omnipotence. Uh, those are things. But really, if we think of it in terms of God is infinite, as that's the category that those things fit in, although actually it's applied to everything about God. But in terms of these sort of non-moral just descriptions of his being, he is infinite, he is without limits uh, in relation to one in relation to time, which to say then is that he is eternal. He is eternal. One theologian says we cannot form a conception or mental image of an infinite object. We just can't do that. We don't have any capacity again for that. To say that God is infinite is just of a, of a, of a category that, that we, we can't quite wrap around. Being eternal has been said by... Uh, has been acknowledged by others to be one of the most difficult concepts in philosophy or theology. Uh, it is a very difficult concept to, to even try to even define and to explain. And, and I think we'll, I'll just, we'll touch on that just briefly. Yeah. And to say that, and even to say that, is a creative framework. It is to say that from the vantage point of a creature. 
looking up to God in that. But to uh, but even at that is, is, is only a component of what God has done in creation. Like for him, there really is no past, present, or future. Now that, that's going to lead into something else here that I'll mention. Um, we do have, now this is put under the non-moral, and this is why I would not say it's, an, it's uh, this is under the incommunicable attribute. Just one reason why I don't personally like, find, I just don't personally find those as helpful. We do share in that in a sense, we don't share in anything like God shares in it, right? Because, because he is self-existing, because he is infinite, because he is the source of all things, we're never going to, to be any part, I mean, we share in any part of God to, the, to that degree of God. But we do, we do in some measure, and even in eternality. So we know, what is the difference? Are we eternal beings? Right. We don't ever, if you exist, you're always going to exist. The issue is where you're going to exist, what conditions you're going to exist in. But you're going to be alive. You are going to exist. There's no changing that. You can't get out of it. But when we think of God, what is different in terms of saying that we're eternal as opposed to saying God is eternal? This is not a trick question, by the way. And I would say, yeah, that's exactly true. And I'd even say that, that he just is. So even when we talk, you know, we hear sometimes, because we're creatures and we just, we don't really have language and concepts for this. So we talk about eternity past or eternity future, but that, that really isn't even an accurate way to talk about it. Um, it's simply to say when God revealed himself to Moses, he simply said, I am, I am. I, I, it's almost humorous and it's like, Wow. Um, what infinite majesty is a God who could simply say that as he's about to act? He just simply says, look, I'm not, I am. I am. I'm God. And that's it. And now I'm going to act as God and I'm going to deliver you as my people. Um, but in that context. But, so to think of God being infinite in relation to time is to say, yes, that he simply is. Uh, he exi- eternally exists without beginning or end. He is outside of time. Now, there's a philosophical issue and theological mix here of how to think of that. So there's two ways that you can think of that. You can say that God is, God is everlasting is sometimes how a temporal kind of eternity, which is to say this, that God exists, has always existed, but he's always existed in a succession of moments. In other words, for me to pick up this pencil it, it requires something. It requires a movement through space. It requires the, 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 move, uh, the actual taking this pencil from one position to another. So that is the kind of this, and it takes, even if it's an infinitesimal amount of time, it takes amount of time to do that. And so there's one view of eternity that says that God does not, he exists in a succession of moments. Like, so this moment is not that moment over here, and so on and so forth. The other view, which is the more common view, which is probably how we think of it, is the all-temporal view of eternity, which means that God doesn't exist in a succession of moments. And that time is conceived in that way is actually dependent on creation. Physics says that you need matter and space in order to have time. That's a, that's a physical... I mean, I don't say... I say it as one who's taking that from physics. I mean, from physicists, but... 
the idea of physics is that you need matter and you need space to have time. Those are things that are from creation, right? In the beginning, time, God, there's force, right? Created and so forth. Matter. He created or created the heaven or energy. He created the heavens and the earth. So those are things that are necessary for time. So when we think of God uh, bringing all of those things into existence, probably a better way to think of it is that he is outside of that kind of time. Now, arguments against that, well, then God's always experiencing the same thought. God's always, like if there's evil, God's always experiencing that. Like they, That's what who, others who argue against that say, how can you have that? Now you see kind of the, the philosophical stuff gets in there. How can you have that? And the answer really to that is simply this, that that seems to be most consistent with Scripture and that God exists at a level that we don't, that we can't comprehend. And so to say then that God doesn't always have the same thought at the same times, it is simply to say that when in t- talking about God, that there is a logical order, not necessarily a chronological order to his thoughts. And so how can that happen with God? I have no idea. We don't know. And really, when we, on either one of those positions, it's not heresy, uh, frankly, um, but it does show us and, and highlight to us how inconceivable in reality God is in his nature. Like, what does that mean to say he's eternal? Wow, I don't know. I, mean, I know that it means that he, he's always, he is. And I think that really is the answer. That's, that's God's answer. He is. He, there's never a time when God wasn't, uh, that he simply is, and he always is. There's, anything after that just gets, uh, brings up a lot of thorny, thorny, thorny things. Uh, now, there's many texts there. We looked at that. You can look at others on your own, but Exodus uh, 3 is, is a huge one there. Uh, the implications of it. Well, I'll, I'll just highlight one. You can look at these and add your own. I think one, the, the, the response to that is worship. Again, every part of this is just worship. But I'll tell you one way, and you share if you, wanna, if you want to. I'd be interested to hear from you. One way that, that, uh, that, that I think of that in terms of just my spiritual life, uh, besides just the greatness of God, is when you think of God's wisdom and his knowledge, like have you ever prayed and maybe like so many, I don't know about you, but probably I think this is our common human experience that God's problem is just inscrutable like i so often don't understand it it just doesn't make sense to me you know like i can think of ways this should work out and you know here's my idea um but god doesn't work that way and i find myself being very humbled and very encouraged to think that i i don't know what's going to happen in five seconds from now a missile could come through and blow up this building right and i have no idea of or any of us here i can't see i can't guarantee I don't know what all the complexities of even in things going on in my own life or in your lives. And, and I can't plan or predict anything. And so I couldn't rightly plan and lay out a plan for your life or you couldn't for mine. And I can't even for my own. But God is eternal. Do You see, he sees everything in its perfect relationship to everything else. He sees everything as it's going to be and as it actually is. So I find comfort in, in, in saying, I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to understand it because God is eternal. God sees everything. He declares the end from the beginning, and he knows the wisest, the best, and the true way to bring about what is right and just and good. 
So I don't have to understand it, and you don't have to understand it. That's, so that's how it works out with me. Would you want to add anything to that? Yeah, that's a great way to say it. That is a really good way to say it. So that relates, I, I really think in that terms, in terms of practically relates much to the wisdom of God, uh, where there's comfort. Let's look at briefly. So infinite in relation to time, it means he's eternal. Infinite in relation to space means that he is omnipresent. God does not have a size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space. With his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. Now, you can see, again, how the simplicity of God, why that isn't important. Again, it's kind of its own philosophical thing out there. But the, the basic idea, you can see why it's important. God isn't in parts. So when we say that he's infinite in relation to space, there's, no, there's not like part of God's here and part of God's over here. Like you can talk to somebody and, you know, or maybe somebody's talking to you and your brain's somewhere else. And you go, I'm present, but really I'm not. I'm the Those kind of things don't happen with God. It means the fullness of who God is is present in every place. Where are the passages that we go through the most in the Psalms to, to take that idea? Psalm 139. No, you're exactly, you're, you're exactly right, though. It's Psalm 139. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of this poetic language, if I take the wings of the dawn, like if I could just hold on to that little dawn and just follow it all the way around uh, when I see the sun coming up in the morning. Uh, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me, and so forth. In other words, no matter where he goes, God is present in the fullness of his being. If you're like, I just want to get away, and so I want to get away from God, I'll just go 20 zillion light years over to, guess what, who you're going to find? God, right? He's there. I mean, that, that is a mind-blowing... Is, and so it is to say this, that God isn't in parts, that he is everywhere. There's other definitions you can read. He's everywhere in the fullness of his being, always at the same time. We are never not with God, and he is never not with us in any part. He's never distracted. He's not, he's not, uh, he's not hurried. He is everywhere, always. Now, there's massive implications of that in terms of even our own, again, our spirituality, our walk with God. It, it, it both at the same time. Uh, what omnipresence is not? Let's just make it does not material substance infinitely extended. Like, yeah, actually, that was my elbow, but I know. I'm glad that's a soft plastic. Uh, now, wh- why is that important? What is it? So to say that he's, it's not a material substance infinitely extended in any kind of direction. Because if you had that, just think about that. If you had God, if you had like a material being, if it wasn't that he was spirit, then you'd have certain material parts of God here, right? And then other material parts over there. So it's not. So, so again, that concept in and of itself is hard. It's related to his being infinite spirit. He is eternal spirit is how the scripture def- defines him. But in, in sense of his presence, uh, God is not physically present, although he can manifest himself through physical means, and he does, but he is present in his being. But that, again, leads us back to a spiritual being, which is beyond a concept. 
the idea of presence, I read a book a while ago. What was it called? Um, oh, I don't remember. But anyway, it's, one of the helpful points out of it, I remember, was kind of teasing out this idea of what is the very idea of presence. And it's a very, that whole concept, you probably never thought of it. And I, and I hadn't really until I read this author. Uh, but think of this, for example. If you have, well, think of Paul. Well, do you use a biblical example? He says, I'm with you in spirit. So that means there is in the heart of those people who knew and loved Paul, though he wasn't physically there, there was a sense when he was there, they felt his presence. You've heard sometimes say, well, I always have, like if it was an influential teacher or, or a parent, I have them on my shoulder all the time. That is the idea of presence. Uh, if you call someone on the phone a long way away, you're not physically there, but now you have a presence with them through your voice, though you could be on the other side. My point of saying that, that idea of presence is a very broad kind of concept when you think about it. Well, in terms of God, who is spiritual being, who is not physical and material, he is present always, all the time, in the fullness of who he is, everywhere. There's no place where God is not fully present. The experience of that presence might be different for different people in different, in different places and in different ways. Uh, I, I don't know if, we, if it's in the notes here. But God is uh, everywhere simultaneous in the fullness of his being. You can read that quote. It might be helpful. Um, God's, okay, th- we do talk about God. Number three, God's presence in relation to people is spiritual, not spatial. And that means essentially. That means essentially. So Psalm 73 says this in that verse I list there. Nevertheless, I'm uh, continually with you. Um, Whom have I in heaven but you and beside you? I desire uh, nothing on earth. In verse 28, but as for me, he says, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of your works. So he's, he's communicating here an experience of God's presence. Now, let me ask you this question. So this is the psalm of Asaph. So if he's saying this, the nearness of God is my good. So he might be saying, I'm at this little, you know, I'm hanging out with my friends in Jerusalem. We're watching a football game. And uh, I just have this nearness of God in my experience. I mean, I, he is my good. I am fellowshipping with God in the midst of that. Somebody else is sitting there who may be his unbelieving friend. He's trying to witness to him, right, and tell him, you know, you got to believe in the God of Israel. That other unbeliever has no experience like that. There's no sense of God's presence in that. Is God less present? He's not. So the point, simple point being made in that is God's presence is, in terms of its experience, is not a physical, it's a spiritual reality. God is just as present equally, but he's present in different ways how each person is relating to God. So the experience of that is different. It's, it's really dealing with the spiritual presence of God, but he is there in each, in each case. Um, God is near the righteous. Scripture speaks in terms of God in spatial relations. When Scripture uses that language of sp- you know, spatial language, like God is near or God is far away, it's speaking on the spiritual level. God is no less near and no less far away from anybody in terms of his being. He's equally there. But God is near, or he is away in terms of how we're relating to God. So in the psalm of Asaph, he's near to God, 
because he's relating to God by faith and there's an experience of God. There's a fellowship. God is present to bless him. God is present to encourage him. God is present to give him guidance and leading in life. God is present in that way, but yet he's far away from the wicked. He's not there to bless them. He's not leading them. Uh, he's not in any way uh, communicating that presence to them in a way that is helpful. So God's, uh, David said this, modeled this in Psalm fifty-one, eleven: do not take, cast me away from your presence. Uh, what, what is it that cuts us off from the experience of God's presence? Sin. What is the idea of sin? What does it do? It makes a separation. Sin separates us from God. So even as a believer, when there's sin in our life, we're separated from God. God's no less present than when we have those really intense moments of worship and we just feel like God's like standing right there next to us. Wish that happened more, but we have moments like that. And then those times we're like, you know, you feel like you're praying to the ceiling and like nobody. God is no less there present. This is how it should affect us in terms of our spirituality. To realize God is no less there. He is no less presence. I understand that by faith because of what God reveals to me in his word. My experience of him may be different in different moments. Uh, and so that's one way where we examine our heart. If I don't experience God, well, the first thing I want to see, is there sin in my life that's separating me? Or even in times where there's not something like that, it's just I just don't, for whatever reason, God has kind of removed some of the, the intimacy of that relationship. But we can in times in a class where you may not feel and you have to stand up and be bold. It is that God, God is with me. I may not feel it right at this moment. Maybe he'll give me that. But he's no less with me. God is always present with me in the fullness of his being, though sometimes my experience of that in relation of it might, might change. Uh, and, and, and scripture uses that language as is mentioned here. Uh, so those examples, God was present in the tabernacle and the temple, but then he was not present in uh, Ezekiel 8 where the glory goes up from the temple and departs. God is present in heaven to bless, but he's present in hell for wrath. He's no less present in either place, uh, but he's present in a different capacity, in a different relationship to those people. The implications. Well, again, you can... You can look up uh, those. God is with us in every joy, trial, pain, sorrow, and need. You have troubles. I mean, you have relational troubles. You have difficulties. That is our strength to go, but God is present with me. God would never leave me, and he will never forsake me. He will never abandon me. My mother and my father may let me down or forsake me, but God will never forsake me. That, that, that is the thing. He's never not with me. So in those moments of loneliness, a Christian should never ultimately feel alone. We can have that in terms of relations with other people. But ultimately, we're never alone. We're never alone. In terms of sanctification, it means, uh, Kevin, you may have mentioned this, it means we're never alone, right? That idea sometimes that people, particularly uh, the kind of sins that, which are a lot of sins, but where people want to kind of go off and be secret and hide in a place because of the shame of what they're doing. Uh, and some... Then like, you know, you have these things like, uh, there's websites where you can, you know, have accountability type of things. And I think, okay, those, those are like a crutch that can have a place, but that's not really as a Christian where you want to be. You, you need to realize you're never alone because somebody else who's a human being can intervene into your life. That should not be the foundation of your conviction. It should be the fact that God is always present with me, watching me. That's an external thing. It also means in our hearts, doesn't it? 
It means that I never have a secret and a private thought. You never, in your entire life, never have a secret thought. You never have a secret intention. Never, at one moment. God is as present at every moment. He sees it. He knows it. That's why, in terms of our sanctification, that's where we do battle with our sin, right? We can never go, oh, I hope God missed that one. You know, that thing that shoots across our mind or that particular intention or motive. We go, oh, maybe God didn't. No, God was there. He saw it. It's, you need to deal with that. And I need to deal with that in my heart and confess it and seek to, uh, by the grace of the Spirit, put it to death. Uh, so let's finish then. Okay, speaking of Augustine, I actually did not write where I got this from, so I have to find it. Hopefully I wrote it down from searching this again. But uh, why don't you, Kevin, read that quote for us, and, and, I, and I guess we'll just have to end there. Oh, I'm so sorry. I went 15 minutes over, a few minutes over. But maybe we'll listen to uh, Augustine here and let him. Then yourself it should be. There is no place where you may flee from an angered God and desperate God who is pacified. There is absolutely not a place for you to falter. Do you want to fall from him? Rather, flee to him. Isn't that great? And that's a great that statement right there. He says, uh, Will you not follow yourself wherever you flee? But since there is one even more deeply inward than yourself. Like, we can never flee. From God. Well, here's what I would ask you to do um, for next week. Oh. I may, because of uh, another responsibility that's, uh, um, it's not, I mean, it's ministry related, that's, that's kind of time sensitive. I may have to cancel next week unless y'all wanted to meet later in the afternoon, if that were possible, like before pre prayer meeting. It's just a meeting that I need to be at. So uh, would that be okay? Instead of skipping, we could do um, maybe like meet like at three or four before prayer meeting. Is that possible? Oh, how about like 3 or 3.30? Would that be possible? You can think about that and let me know. Maybe if y'all would email me and let me know if that's possible. The fourth. That's that's next. Uh, Michael is working, so he's leaving right after church. Mm-hmm. And I would have to at least go home and pick him up. Daddy, did you guys have the dinner? It's the first Sunday of the month. But we're doing it on the 28th. 25th. Of September? Yeah, so we might not have it then. Oh, because of Reardon's. That's their last Sunday with us. And so we're going to have a, I know. We're going to have a special service for them and then a, a fellowship dinner. Very long vacation. Yeah. Heaven, oh, heaven is, uh, we, there's no design. Oh, yeah, I'll close the door.
Are we recording the first? No, I think that's what he wants to turn on. Okay. I think that's why he's turning on. Well, let's pray. Father, help us to take these things and um, to marvel at them. You are majestic and holy, and your greatness, as the psalmist said, is unsearchable. You are infinite. You are majestic. How can we even begin to fathom? We can't. But yet the most amazing thing is that we can know you and that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have done more than just reveal yourself to us externally. You you, you have brought us near by transforming our hearts, by indwelling us in some mysterious and wonderful way by your spirit, giving us a true, intimate relationship with you um, through Christ. And so help us to live in light of these realities, to worship you rightly, to walk with you rightly, to glorify you and to think and that you are bringing, uh, uh, directing to accomplish your purposes. Our, our Lord, again, to, to, to be those who, who model um, and demonstrate a deep and a great and a reverent faith in, in you, who are this God we've been speaking about and revealed in Christ in his name.